day, we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible with you, or maybe you have a neighbor that you can look on with, find your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll be beginning at the end of that chapter here in just a few moments. But before that, maybe some of you saw the news with me over this past couple of weeks about Michael Rotondo. Michael Rotondo was driven out of his living quarters. Uh, he finally got out of there just two and a half uh, hours before noon on the deadline which was set for him, which was this past Friday. So he'd been driven out of his house, and the house that he was driven out of was actually his home place. But Michael Rotondo was 30 years old, and at the age of 30, he had moved out for a while and then had moved back into this home for about eight years. Now, his parents came to a point where they wanted Michael to get out on his own. And so they began to send various messages to him. At first, they gave him a generous check, which was for $1,100. And they told him to use that for his moving expenses, which he did not, by the way. He used it for his personal expenses. And then the communication kind of broke down between them such that the family, the parents, were sending him letters on a regular basis. Early on, they were asking him to find a job, to sell some of his possessions, to, to take the money from selling his guns and his stereo and to use that to find his own place. But Michael Rotondo thought that he had a right to stay where he was. And so eventually his family had to turn to the court system and issue an eviction notice for their own son in hopes of getting him out of their home. And this made its way all the way before a Supreme Court justice with the New York State Supreme Court. And there that justice had a 30-minute conversation, really an argument back and forth with Michael Rotondo as he continued to claim that his family needed to give him more time to get moved out of his home. Well, in the end, Supreme Court Justice Donald Greenwood made the decision that it was time for Michael to move on. Even in spite of the fact that Michael had told the judge of how his parents had been so non-supportive of him because they were unwilling to provide him with meals or to do his laundry at 30 years of age. And when the judge stated his decision that Rotondo should move out of his parents' house, Rotondo told the judge that he was wrong and called the judge's eviction order outrageous. The judge held firm, though, and so Rotondo finally, by the force of the law, moved out just a couple of days ago, as I mentioned, just a couple of hours before the court-mandated time when he had to be out. And after the trial, Rotondo seemed to let loose of the ultimate struggle behind this saga. As he gathered around with reporters outside of the courtroom, and he, and he told them, those, of, those reporters which had gathered around, that the truth is that he just isn't ready to move out of his parents' home. Now, you and I can look at a story like this one and make some quick conclusions. It seems apparent to us here that, that this is a man who is simply not interested in doing what his parents would desire for him. He's simply not interested in growing up. He's simply not looking at what his parents would will for him in the issue of growing up, in growing into maturity. He's not looking to his parents and what they would desire for him to do. And more and more in our society, we're seeing individuals who are not growing up according to their parents' wills. More and more in society, we're seeing this sort of issue where individuals like Marco Rotondo in his parents' basements are really setting up shop and expecting to live long-term off of their parents' dime. They're not getting work, they're not getting an education that will enable them to launch out on their own or to reach maturity and living these rich lives of their own, which their parents have hoped for them. And yes, this may be the case in more and more American homes. But I'm afraid the statistics of the home can't come close to comparing with the epidemic that we see among many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the church in our day has overwhelming resources. We have a wealth of Bibles. We have a wealth of study resources we have a wealth of budgets which are ready to be contributing to the growth of 
Christians. We have a wealth of facilities that make it available for us to come and to gather and study in God's Word. We have so many more resources than that ragtag group of fishermen and other impoverished men and women who set out to set the world on fire for Christ in the times after which Jesus was ascended into heaven. And yet with all of these resources, with all of the things that are available to us, we see so few Christians who are growing to be more like Jesus according to the desires of our Heavenly Father. So few in America. I mean, mean, we claim to be a Christian nation, but how much sanctification are we seeing? How much growth in Christ-likeness are we seeing from the average Christian? And so, so it's easy for us to take a look at Michael Rotondo's situation and say, ha, that guy's just not growing up. But really, when the spotlight is turned on us, when it comes to this issue of sanctification, this issue of growing into the image of Christ, this issue of being formed by the hand of God into the image of Christ, we find that we are the ones who are really struggling here. And so, so today I want to show you how God's Word expects us to be moving out of the basement of our faith. That is, God expects us to be growing more mature in our walk with Him. And, and as we talked about last Sunday, about how God wants each one of us to glorify Him. That's the essence of what we're talking about in this model of being molded in God's hands. It's a matter of how we come about this prioritization of what Christ has called us to do. You'll remember we started off this series of a new vision for a new vision and talking about the Great Commission, Jesus' final words to his disciples before he ascended unto heaven. And he told the church, he told us to go, therefore, and make disciples. That is, individuals who have aligned themselves under a discipline. Individuals who have aligned themselves under a Lord, under a master, under a teacher who will then guide their lives. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so there's a very rich, very practical goal that we as a church ought to be pursuing if we're going to be living out this mission of multiplying God's glory on the earth through the Great Commission. And that is that we need to be making disciples. We need to be teaching all that Jesus has commanded. We need to be under those instructions ourselves. And we need to be ushering those instructions and that lifestyle and those principles and creating models of Christ's character through the work that we do as a church. Paul writes in Romans 8, 29, as we looked at last Sunday, Those whom he, that is God the Father, foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, God has predestined. God has put a destination on the map of every Christian that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. God has a design in play for every Christian that we ought to be growing in the likeness of Christ. Now, most of us who have children know what it's like to have a desire for what they will one day become. We nurture them, we love them, we support them, but we long that they will represent us well by going out and making a positive difference in the world once they are grown. Well, it's clear here that God has the same desire for his spiritual children. He wants us growing into the image of Jesus. He wants us reflecting the life of Jesus, who is the exact representation of our God in the flesh. But if we were to take a spiritual survey, then I'm convinced that that far too many American Christians would not give testimony that over recent months and years they have seen themselves growing and proceeding toward that destination which God has in store for us, of growing into the likeness of Christ. We have not seen ourselves to be growing more like Jesus. We've come to faith in Christ, but we're content to be stuck in the basement of God's house for the remainder of our spiritual lives. So many of us are. 
But God wants us to be changed. God wants to form us into something new. God wants us to be a vessel which shines forth the glory of Christ as we reflect the one who is our Savior. This, this thing which we talked about last Sunday, that even from the dawn of creation, mankind was different in that we were created in the image of God. We were created to look like Him. We were created such that His character would be exuding through us. And so that's why we as a church want to keep a strong emphasis on the truth that God wants to form each and every one of us into something new. And we're so convinced of the necessity of this formation that we baked it into this vision that we're talking about here today in this series of messages titled A New Vision for a New Vision. And that vision is that we desire that through this fellowship, Christ would cause multitudes to be found, formed, fired, filled, and flowing. It's, it's, a, it's a vision which is based upon clay. If you haven't been here to hear about this yet, really when you talk about clay and the potter's hands, if clay is going to have some sort of value, that rough, raw, mucky, nasty material, then it has to be transformed in the hands of another. And that's the truth for any one of us. And there's such rich imagery in the Bible that we talked about related to clay and how mankind was formed out of the dirt, dust of the ground. God breathed into him the breath of life. And yet that's what we're talking about in this vision, this, this idea of being discovered by the master potter, being found by him and invited to encounter God in this place. But we've moved along now. What we began looking at last Sunday was this stage of being formed. That is, once the potter has the clay... If it's going to have any use in the long haul, he must shape that clay into some sort of vessel that is worthy of his use. He must wear off the rough edges. He must, must conform it to his vision for what it should be. And so that's what we're talking about when we desire that through this fellowship, Christ would cause multitudes to be formed into a new vessel by God's transforming power. And as we've mentioned, this is all based on Christ's great commission. All with the idea that Christ has given us a work to do as a body, and we need to be setting about doing that work. Now, if God desires for us to grow more like Jesus, and many Christians give no evidence of growth in their lives, then it seems to me like we need to be sure we understand how, how God has designed for this Christ-like sort of transformation in our lives to take place. How is it that God intends for this transformation into the likeness of Christ to take place in us? And for that, we turn to 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is a letter which was written by the Apostle Paul to a church which he actually founded, he and his companions, in a, in a previous missionary trip. In the important Greek city known as Corinth, it was a great trade route. A lot of things going on, but that also meant that there were a lot of different ideologies coming in and out of this city. There were a lot of pagan rituals. There were a lot of things that this church had to walk away from that maybe a lot of other churches wouldn't have to deal with because of the cultural influences which were impacting them from all sides. And so when you read the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, you're going to find a church that really is having some big problems but it's because they need to be growing. It's because they've got some things that the potter needs to be forming out of them. The potter needs to be wearing some of those rough edges out of this area, which have been so unaccustomed to God and so accustomed to welcoming others for the purposes of trade. But that's the letter we're talking about here now. And when we come to the final verse of chapter 3, Paul maps out how it is that God changes us and matures us into the reflections of God's glory that we were designed to be. How are Christians to be formed? How do we move out of the basement of the Christian faith, you might say? Well, Paul lays it out for us in these verses. And particularly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Look at that verse with me, if you will. There Paul says, But we all, that is all Christians, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, 
just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In this verse, Paul shows us how Christian transformation happens. Christians are transformed into the image of one whose glory we behold as in a mirror, is what Paul describes here in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Whose glory is it that we're beholding as in a mirror? It's the glory of the Lord. It's the glory of Jesus, our Savior. A transformation takes place in this. It's from his glory to our glory. We talked about this word glory, what it really means is a measurement sort of term. It talks about the brilliance of something or the weight of who something is. And when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about the weight of all that he is and all that he has done. And that's the transformation that, that Paul talks about here. Glory to glory as, as we behold the Lord Jesus as in a mirror. And it's a spiritual sort of transformation that we're talking about here today. Just as from the Lord the Spirit, as this verse says. And per God's word in this verse, we all, that is all Christians, all of us are being transformed into the same image. By the way, this word transformed here in verse 18 simply means to change into another form. The, the Greek word is the word metamorpho. Metamorpho sounds a lot like a word that we have from the English, which is actually a transliteration of that word, which is metamorphosis, right? When we talk about metamorphosis, we're talking about the transformation that happens in the life of an insect. Or you can think of a butterfly, for example. If that butterfly starts out as a larva known as a caterpillar, right? But then th this transformation takes place, wherein that caterpillar becomes, becomes a pupa, right, in the cocoon, and that cocoon forms, and eventually what emerges is this completely transformed sort of creature in the butterfly that emerges with beauty and flies away. Metamorphosis, that's what we call this process. A and that's the sort of transformation that God has designed to take place in every Christian. God has designed that each of us should be changed from the beauty that is within us, the beauty that he has placed within us, such that individuals would see that beauty shining forth on the outside of who we are. As a matter of fact, there are only three other uses of this word, metamorpho, in the Greek New Testament. One of those occurs in Romans 12, 12, where God's word tells us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, so that we may prove what the will of God is. The other two references to this word come in the accounts of what we would call Jesus' transfiguration. That is when the disciples, his closest disciples, Peter and James and John were along with him and, it, and they came up to the mountain and they saw Jesus transfigured before their eyes such, such that the glory that was within him was no longer contained within him but was shining forth in this brilliance before them such that they fell as though they were dead. It's the same word. Transfiguration and transformation are translated in our English from this same Greek word, metamorpho. It's that transformation from within and that's what we're called to be here in this verse in second corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 we're called to have this glorious transformation from within such that god's glory becomes visible in us because we are reflecting what he has placed within us and so god's word here in second corinthians 3 18 makes it clear that his spirit ought to be forming each one of us into something more glorious and with that i just want to ask are you there my friends are you growing into the likeness of christ are you being transformed from within because of the great truth of the gospel that god has placed within you is this spiritual transformation happening in your life such that you can look back to where you were a month ago or a year ago and say look at where god has brought me in the midst of this journey with christ or are you, as we are so often prone to do, finding yourself at a plateau where this growth is not happening? Have you simply 
come to Jesus to be a part of his family with no expectations of ever moving out of the family basement. Well, let's summarize the key to spiritual growth here in these verses. The summary of how we grow in Christ is this. Focus on Christ. Focus on Christ. It's as simple as that. Do you want to see spiritual growth? Do you want to move out of the basement of God's house? Then focus on Christ. Most of us in our preparations for for coming here today use the mirror of some sort, right, to prepare ourselves. Not all of you, I can see, but most of us, right, we use the mirror with the expectation that we were going to be getting ourselves ready to come here to this place today. And God's word in these verses here calls for us to behold, as in a mirror, the glory of God. That is, each of us is to reflect the Lord's glory. That's God's intention for us. Now, I used a mirror in my bathroom to shave and to brush my teeth and to fix my hair this morning. Because this just doesn't happen, folks. But there were some things that I just plain expected of that mirror, right? I've got a pretty reliable mirror. I mean, I expect when I go there, the mirror is going to be doing some things particularly well. And God's word calls us to glorify God by reflecting the glory of Christ. When we behold him as in a mirror, by this we are transformed from glory to glory. His glory is transformed to us. And so I want to share with you from this verse and the other verses which are around it, four ways to improve your reflection of Christ. Four ways to improve your reflection of for Christ. You ready for this? The first is this, remove the veil. Remove the veil. In the preceding ch- verses of chapter 3, just a, just a couple of verses back, Paul has been contrasting the old covenant of the law with the new covenant of God's grace that we find in the gospel. Those who only know the Old Covenant, those who only know the Old Testament law, that law which was given by Moses, that law which was to ultimately drive us to Christ, as we saw in the book of Galatians when we preached through that book. But those who only know that covenant, that is the Jews who have not believed in Christ, they live with a veil that prevents them from seeing the best of what God has to offer. That's what Paul describes there in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 15 through 16. There he says, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So Paul's describing here how when Moses went out of the tent of meeting with the Lord uh, to obtain the law, he emerged with this glory which was on his face. He, He had been in the presence of God to receive the law, and as he emerged from that experience, God's glory was kind of written all over him to the point where the people couldn't stand him. And so what did Moses do? Well, he wore a veil around for a couple of purposes. One is because he was driving individuals away, right? It was too brilliant for them to encounter. But Paul also makes some analogies here in 2 Corinthians 3 to the fact that that glory was fading away. And God didn't want his people, or maybe Moses didn't want the people to know that that glory was fading away. But the ultimate picture there is that the Old Testament law and all that that law offers is a very glorious sort of law. But it has a glory which God has designed from the very issuing of the law to be fading away. And then Paul contrasts that with the glory which comes from Christ. The glory which comes through the gospel. And this, my friends, is an unfading glory. That's what Paul would describe for us there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And because Jesus has stood in our place and has given himself as a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath, the veil has been removed. That is, we can behold God's unhindered glory as in a mirror. God has enabled us to draw near through Christ, our Savior. This is the wonderful truth of why you don't need a priest anymore to come and to stand between you and the Almighty. Because Jesus is our great high priest. He has torn down the veil. He is the one who enables us to have direct fellowship with our God. The veil has been removed. This is a wonderful truth that we have as Christians. 
And so we ought to draw near to Christ, our Savior. Now, the mirrors that we use on our day-to-day basis don't have minds of their own, right? If yours does, you might want to, I don't know, call in an exorcist of some sort, whatever you think. But we are called to reflect God's glory as in a mirror, and we do have minds of our own. We do have wills of our own. Can you imagine if you'd gone in this morning and your mirror had thrown a blanket over itself? Can you imagine that? If, if your mirror just said, all right, I'm going to toss a veil on here today. Would that mirror be very useful to you? Not till the blanket was gone, right? Not till the veil had been taken away. The same is true of Christ. If you, my friends, have not had the veil removed, then you shouldn't expect to be growing into his likeness. And how is the veil removed? Well, that's what Paul talks about here in these verses. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And my friend, I just want to ask, have you turned to Jesus? Have you had the veil taken away from your life? Have you determined to be useful to him? Have you heard about what he could do and committed yourself into his forming and transforming hands? Well, I want to tell you now on the authority of God's word that if you will turn to the Lord, he'll take the veil away. He'll welcome you into fellowship with him. He will transform you into what you were always designed to be. And you'll find your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction in that because he delights to do these things now oftentimes the veil we throw up between ourselves and christ comes from our own desire to hide our shame we have some level of things that we've done in our past or some level of things that we've heard about from individuals about who we are whether they're true or not and we become ashamed of who we are and so we throw up a veil that says something like i'm not worthy Or I really just want to hide this thing from God because I don't want him knowing about who I am and what I've done. So often, the veil that is thrown up is a veil that we are are throwing up to hide our shame. And I just want to ask, are you ashamed of anything in life right now? That can be a great hindrance for us that keeps us from growing in the Lord. And that's what Paul has in mind as we get to chapter 4 and verses 1 through 4. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Paul makes it clear here that he and his fellow ministers of the gospel were once ashamed. You can't renounce that which you've never possessed. You can't declare that this no longer has power over me, that I'm putting this in the dust if it's never been a part of who you were and what you encountered and yet in verse 2 of chapter 4 paul says that he and his traveling companions his ministry companions have renounced the things hidden because of shame yes their lives were veiled they couldn't come to christ or see his glory because they were too ashamed to stand in his presence but that's not the case for them anymore the veil has been removed how could it be removed the key is in verse 1 As we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. You see, God's mercy overcame the shame of the Apostle Paul. And God's mercy overcame the shame of your pastor, Jeremy. And God's mercy can overcome the shame of your life. Because God delights to do that through Christ. So many others who are gathered here today could give this common testimony that God's mercy has overcome the shame in their lives. God's mercy has removed that veil of shame for us. And he'll do the same for you, my friends. 
But there's an adversary out there. There's an adversary who wants to keep the veil in place, who doesn't want you to see the glory of the image of Christ. He wants to blind you. He wants to keep you away from God. He wants to keep you in unbelief so that you can't see the light of the gospel, so that you can't see the beauty and the radiance of Christ. Jesus is the one who perfectly represents God's mercy and love and grace towards you and the devil, who's referred to in verse 4 as the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, the, the devil presents us with things that are under his reign. Remember, the scripture calls him, in these verses, the God of this world. He, he presents to us the things of this world. He sets out these phony fabrications of the things that we ought to pursue, and he causes us to pursue these temporary, phony fabrications of pleasure that leave us wanting for more instead of letting us go to this great source of eternal pleasure. Satan causes us to hear the voices of others and they see their eyes of disdain so that we shy away in shame rather than coming to the one who knows us perfectly, who knows all of our faults, all of our wrongs, and yet still loves us with an unfathomable, unquenchable, undying love. Do you see how Satan sets out these fabrications? And so I say to you, put that devil in his place. Remove the veil. Come to Jesus. Let real change begin in you. But also, if you want to improve your reflection of Christ, you must secondly, aim in the right direction. Aim in the right direction. Now, if you'd gone to that mirror that you used to get ready today, and you'd found that it had been turned, I don't know, maybe say 20, 30 degrees or more, what would that have done to your ability to get ready? Depending on the size of the mirror, that might have distorted the image of you, right? Like a house of mirrors where you go and you seem like you're a little awkward in shape. Or it could have really removed that image altogether. Well, the same is true of us. If we as individual Christians and we as a body are going to be conformed to the image of Christ, then we must aim for Christ. We cannot reflect him if our lives are not aimed at him. That's what Paul takes up in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. Read with me. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, Paul says here, we're not preaching ourselves as Lord. That is, he's not trying to direct others to honor him for how great he is. Instead, he's living his life to glorify Christ. Paul realizes that he has no power apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, he's still in darkness. But Christ has caused the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to shine into his heart. The same is true for any of us who know Christ. If we are aimed in any other direction than being aimed toward the one who brings light, then we're only reflecting the darkness. And we all get out of tilt sometimes, don't we? We all get out of tilt. If we're honest, we all go through these moments when we want the attention, we want the credit, we want others to respect us, to honor us, to make us feel like we're really something. But let me tell you, friends, if we are preaching ourselves as Lord over the lives of others, then we're showing others nothing but darkness. And we need to get in line. Maybe you've got the opportunity to be the boss at your workplace. Or, or maybe God's placed you in a position to be the head of your household. Maybe you've been granted some position of authority in parenting or in some government sort of capacity. If you're using your authority to keep others in line so that you can make your life easier rather than just using the authority that you have to reflect Jesus to others, then you're not a stewarding, stewarding your authority well. But that's not Paul here. He's an apostle of all 
things. He, he's, he's one who has been commissioned by Christ himself with authority to rule over the church. But how does he rule? He rules by preaching Christ as Lord and by being a bondservant. He's literally a slave of others for Jesus' sake here. Now that's reflecting the glory of Christ, my friends. That, that's aiming in the right direction. Jesus came as what? The suffering what? Servant. He's the suffering servant. And Paul here is showing that he suffers for the sake of others. He suffers so that he can serve others in the body of Christ and others who need to join into this body of Christ. And, and Paul is reflecting the image of Christ our Savior in his ultimate dedication to serving others. And so should we all. We must aim in the right direction. As a church, this means that we must have a heart for seeing others formed into Christ's image. This will lead us to give ourselves to see them formed into that image. That's the reason why we seek to study God's Word, why we seek to make disciples, why we seek to serve those who are struggling with doubts and disappointments and hurts and habits and hang-ups. We want to see God's glory resounding in their lives. We want to see them transformed. And we need to be servants of this. We need to be reflecting Christ's image as we give of ourselves to others. So remove the veil. Aim in the right direction. But if you want to improve your reflection of Christ, I also say to you, reflect, don't project. When you use a mirror, you don't expect it to project its own image, right? Or to think of that another way, None of you probably used your TV to fix your hair this morning, right? Because the TV is projecting an image, and you want a reflection of an image. If Jesus is going to be seen in us, then we must be reflecting him and not projecting ourselves. That's what Paul gets at here in verses 7 through 12. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. The key to these verses of what Paul is describing in his ministry is this, humility. Paul realizes how, how frail and feeble and how plain we are apart from Christ. Oh, how easy it is for us to, be, get, to get bent out of shape when we encounter the sort of things that Paul's describing here, right? When we face affliction or confusion or broken relationships, it's so easy for us to get bent out of shape. Why? Well, because we're nothing more than earthen vessels. And we need to keep that mentality of humility within us. And we've described this so often with our new vision. We're just spoiled clay on our own, by our own power apart from Christ. But when we are found, when we are formed, when we are fired, when we are filled, then we are enabled to be flowing God's riches to the lives of others. And so we commit ourselves to the potter's hand to make this transformation in our lives. And do you know how much an earthen vessel is worth? Now, I could go out in the yard here probably and, and take a shovel and dig down a few, a few little steps and, and find some good dirt maybe some good clay that i could mold into an earthen vessel if i were to do that after the service and put it out front so you guys were coming in next sunday and say who wants to buy this vessel what, what is this worth to you it's not gonna be much right but, but what if i took a bag of diamonds and poured them into that earthen vessel It'd be worth something then right and, and what we find is that the value of the earthen vessel is really the value of what's placed into that vessel. And when Paul describes us here as earthen vessels, that's what he has in mind. He says that he and the other ministers of Christ are constantly caring about in themselves the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in them. 
So Paul says that he's constantly being delivered over death for Jesus' sake. He says he died daily. Did Paul really die daily? Well, we know physically that's probably not possible, right? What he's describing is that he's died to his own pursuits. He has been crucified with Christ, as he says elsewhere. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul's constantly giving himself over to the death of his own passions, the death of his own desires, so that he can serve the lives of others. That is, he's dying to himself so that others can know that Jesus is alive in him. Or to say that another way, Paul is being sure that he reflects Jesus rather than projecting his own ambitions he knows that the value is not in his frail frame the value is in what has been placed within him the value is in what he is reflecting to the world he's taken all of his self-proclaiming self-image making electronics out and he's painted over a nice silver backing so that now he is an instrument of reflection and not projecting himself it's this death that works in him to produce life in others And friends, as we think through this new vision for new vision, if we're going to reflect Jesus to others, then we need to be filled with the truth of Jesus. We need to be a fellowship that is invested in the Word of God. Because this is the real source of riches, my friends. We're just earthen vessels. There is no value apart from what God would pour into us, and God has so richly blessed us with His Word. He has blessed us with the riches of all of eternity in the giving of his word. And so we must be a fellowship that is committed to God's word. And this gospel that he pours into us has this great hope for us and for multitudes of others. And so we're dedicated to finding ways to be formed by his truth. Do you want to improve your reflection of Christ? Then remove the veil, aim in the right direction, reflect, don't project, but finally... Stay focused on Jesus. We expect our mirrors to stay focused on us, right? I mean, can you imagine if your mirror got out of focus and all you could see was a big blur? That wouldn't be very valuable, would it? We keep our lives reflecting the glory of Jesus by staying focused on Jesus. His sacrifice, His resurrection, His promises of future blessings for all of those who are his. That's what Paul has in mind in these final verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. He says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look, not at the things which are seen, but on the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now you may get the idea that this idea of of growing into the likeness of Christ is this drudgery. That it's just this lifeless, unhappy sort of pursuit. But my friends, I want to tell you, it couldn't be farther from the truth. I want you to know that the pursuit of Christ, the pursuit of growing in the image of Christ, offers the greatest joy that you'll ever know. Paul shows the contrast in these final verses. This momentary light affliction that we might face here and now. As we live for Jesus, doing all the things that would be for the sake of others as we reflect the image of Jesus to others. That that momentary affliction is light. And then he compares that with what it produces in us, which is an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. And I believe that the chief problem we have, the chief reason we're prone to set up permanent residence in the basement of God's family in the Christian life is this. We're out of focus. 
we don't realize what is ours to gain as we are conformed to Christ's image. We don't realize what is ours to gain as we are living according to God's very design from the dawn of creation. When we find that our hearts are in tune with God such that what He desires for us is what makes us happy, then we'll find the greatest satisfaction that we'll ever know. This is the blessing that God offers us in Christ. And God offers us an eternity, a happy sort of eternity. As we enter life in eternity, what more could you enjoy than an eternal weight of glory? What more could we long for for all of eternity? For the next billion years, Christ offers you, and then the billion years beyond that, and the billion times a billion, for that number of years, Christ offers us an eternal weight of glory in exchange for momentary light affliction here and now. But I think too often we as Christians pursue the momentary, the temporary, the trinkets of this world instead of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and all that he offers for us. Jesus paved a way for us to live as true reflections of who he is. He has broken down the veil and he calls us into this greatest of all pursuits to find the greatest of all joys for those who yearn to be satisfied will be fully satisfied in him. Jesus paved the way for you to live like that. So I want to ask you, are you living like that, friend? Is your life all in the hands of Jesus? Are you ready to be formed into something new by his power? Maybe, maybe you're here and you need to give your life to him. Or, or maybe you've done that before, but you're still holding back the vessel of your life here and now to pursue trinkets rather than letting his glory fill you up. The, the Tower of London houses the crown jewels of the British Empire. And one of those jewels is the Kohinoor Diamond. The Kohinoor Diamond is a diamond that was actually discovered somewhere out in East Asia. It eventually found its way into India, and there was a prince in India who, at the age of 10 years old, had this diamond in his possession. Now, it was estimated that when the diamond was first found, that it was around 184 carats. That means that the value of that diamond was worth about half a day's wages for the entire world. I mean, we're talking about a very valuable diamond. Imagine a flawless diamond the size of your fist. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the Kohinoor diamond. And this Prince of India, this Punjabi prince, had this diamond in his possession at 10 years of age, and he gave it to the Queen of England. The story is told that later on in this prince's life, he came to be an adult, and he went to visit London. While he was there in London, he made the conscious decision that he wanted to go and see the diamond that he had given to the queen. And so he went to the place where the crown jewels were stored at that time. And as he was there, he asked if he could see this Kohinoor diamond. And it was brought out for him. And he asked at that point, well, would you place it in my hands? And you can just imagine the thoughts on the guards' minds, on the, on the royalty's minds, as this diamond, which had such value, was asked to be placed into the hands of someone who really possessed it early on. I mean, they thought, he's going to want this diamond back. He's going to want to leave this place with this precious, most valuable jewel. But what could they do? He'd been the one who'd given it to him to start with. And so they placed the diamond in his hands. And as he looked at that diamond, he said, you know, when I gave this diamond to the queen, I was just a young child. I mean, I really didn't know the value of this precious jewel. But now I'm older. Now I know the value of this jewel 
And now that I know the value of this jewel, I want to give it to the queen afresh and anew. I want to honor the queen with what I've come to realize is so much more valuable than what I originally thought it was worth. When it comes to this issue of sanctification, when it comes to this issue of living in the basement of God's family, some of us came to Christ at a very young age. Some of us gave our lives to God before we really even knew what the value of a life was. And maybe you're there. Maybe you're older now. And maybe you realize how much more valuable what you have to give may be. Maybe you want to be like that Punjabi prince. And say, Lord, now that I'm older, now that I know what it's worth, I want to give this life to you afresh and anew. Because of who you are and what you've done. Would that be a prayer of your heart? Maybe, maybe you've never given the jewel of your life to Christ. He stands ready to remove the veil. He stands ready to remove you from the transgressions of your sins, to remove the condemnation which is rightfully yours. Jesus has stood in our place, the righteous one for the unrighteous, to bear our penalty, to die the death we deserve to die so that we could have life. He has given all. And we bring these earthen vessels and commit them to him. Maybe that's the desire of your heart today. Maybe there's something you need to do to say, Lord, I'm not growing in Christ's image like I ought to be. And maybe, maybe you come here today and you say, well, I want to be on the right track. I want to be reflecting the image of Christ. Lord Jesus, take me into your hands and form me into something new. My friends, this should be a safe place because we have a safe God who yearns for you to do this sort of thing. His heart is for you. There's some decision that you need to make here today. I pray that you would do it as he would call for you to do. Would you pray with me? Father, your grace is ever so rich and ever so sweet through Christ. And Father, we need to be transformed we realize that we are vile creatures who have missed your mark, and apart from Jesus, we are nothing. And yet your grace pursues us. Your love pursues us, O oh Lord, to the point that Jesus has given all for us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be instruments found reflecting the glory of Christ. We would be instruments filled with His transforming power, new vessels used in your work,